From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Black artists must often fight to be in the spotlight. Today, black singers and musicians reflect on a culture that often dismisses and devalues their talent. Even when we are the best, a lot of times it is downplayed entirely. And it's just like, oh, well, of course they can dance. She's black. Of course she can sing. She's black. For Juneteenth, we'll share a panel discussion on artistic inclusion. Then an unappetizing infestation in northwest Colorado. So you'd be driving along and then there's just a swarm of them going across the highway. And I mean, they're crunching under your tires. (laughs) And the road is actually red from squashed crickets. Just wait till you hear about the cannibalism. And a decade after a deadly wildfire near Colorado Springs, recovery continues. I donated my beat-up car to Colorado Public Radio. Because I was super attached to it. When it was time to get rid of it, it was just nice to know that it went to CPR. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Somebody gave me a call, and they came and picked it up. Our family was excited, one, to get the car off the street, and two, that it went to a good place. It kind of felt like I was giving back and saying thank you, like paying it back, but also paying it forward at the same time. If you have a car to donate, start the process at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We have shared discussions about black life in Colorado this week ahead of Juneteenth. Today, some notable musicians and other artists in the state. My colleague Chandra Thomas-Whitfield takes it from here. The panelists spoke on Juneteenth 2021 at Cleo Parker Robinson Dance in Denver. Jocelyn Ford Keel hosted the discussion. We're here to talk about the entertainment industry in Black as it pertains to Colorado, the Colorado portion of that industry, and how being Black in Colorado as youths, as adults, and those experiences informs our art and our practices. With her on stage were a dancer, a TV producer, and a mix of other musicians. Devin Blake-Jones is from Aurora. He recently put out a song called Frivolous. When he spoke at Juneteenth a couple years ago, he had just competed on the NBC show, The Voice. I love playing guitar. I just picked it up one day and decided that I wanted to learn and was told, you should have learned to play that when you were nine, ten years old. It's too late. You're in your 30s. Give it up. Well, there's this thing called YouTube University. So <laughs> I said, I'll show you. And I, you know, now on The Voice this season my, in my blind audition, I played the guitar. So that was a huge thing for me to... That was my, I'll show you to that one person. I love to write music. I feel like it's a, it's great therapy. It's too frivolous for me. Tonight I'm feeling dangerous. Gonna shut down the club with my hands up. 
from my experience living here and performing in, in Denver for so, maybe over a decade now, for sure over a decade. It's funny because when I look back at some of my experiences and I look back at some of the, the different performances and things I've, that I've done on stage, there were moments when I, I was very proud of myself. Man, I just opened up for Nelly and, you know, I feel like a gangster, you know, <laughs> I am a badass. You can't say nothing about me. And then, you know, you keep it moving. And I think for me, it's recognizing that this younger generation, they are being filtered things that we weren't even filtered when we were their age. Right. We had, you know, Biggie and Tupac and Eminem, but it's nowhere near some of the artists that are out there today right now in hip hop and R&B culture. And I'm not saying anything negative about, you know, what's out right now, but I just feel like we could do a better job of showing the next generation what they can be. And so, for example, I had an awesome opportunity to perform with the Colorado Symphony for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And uh, we sang the prayer and I sang in Italian and I got to wear a tuxedo. And for me, I, I said, well, you know what? Well, this is an honor. You know, you look at that. There was an opportunity where so they put together an event a couple years ago uh, honoring Billie Holiday and her centennial celebration at the Denver Union Station. And I had the opportunity, and I'm not going to lie, I really didn't listen to a lot of Billie Holiday. But I was the first time they said, I want to know, will you sing Strange Fruit? And I said, sure, I'll sing Strange Fruit. Hadn't even heard the dang song. I went home, and at the time, let me tell you, I don't do it anymore, but I used to smoke a little of this stuff. Okay, with Colorado, we're all on the same page here now. Okay, and I was smoking, and I said, well, dang, this seemed real deep. So I started doing research, and I mean, she just I had to just let her just overtake my spirit to, to be able to perform that song in front of those people, and it did. To this day, I don't know if I want to sing that song again because it took so much energy. But I say all of this just to say from my perspective that we have to keep putting on these types of events where we honor those from our past that pioneered the way for us to be able to do what we're doing. You know, if we want to talk about, you know, Martin Luther King or Billie Holiday, let's keep continuing to put on these events. You know, let's continue to be creative. Let's continue to open the door for different musicians and say, you know, I'm going to introduce you to this person. Why don't you sing with the orchestra? Me? The orchestra? Well, now all the other little black boys and girls that were there that day, they say, wow, I can do that. Not just I can get up and shake my tail feather a couple of times to get attention. So that is my perspective that we have to continue to honor each other through our crafts and our passions. Listening to Devin speak alongside him on the panel is Anisha Rush. She's a saxophonist, composer, and educator. I remember in my childhood, I did not see any of this. I, growing up in the Springs, this was something I had to very desperately seek out for myself. And really the only time I saw black musicians were in the church. That was the only place that I saw it. And I learned jazz. I, I, I'm a jazz musician. And, and the most prominent place I saw black musicians was in the church, not playing this black American art form. 
And so for me, I think, you know, I, it is a challenge that I remember, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Tia Fuller, the saxophone player. She was the saxophonist in Soul, that new movie. And she actually um, competed in the Miss Juneteenth pageant that used to happen. But I remember I had went to a jazz festival in like middle school, I think, and Mr. Otis was his name. Yeah. Um, and he mentioned to Tia, like, oh, there's this black girl, this black saxophone player. And next thing I know, I get something in the mail from her. And it's just, it was small. And I don't, to this day, I don't think she, she probably doesn't remember. But the impact that had on me for her to have recognized me, honestly, that was the, the moment when I realized I can do this. Like I, someone's done this before. She looks like me. I can do this. And so as an educator, it, I'm, I'm very, it's heavy on me because if you look at the jazz community in Denver, there is this massive separation between that and the black community. It is massive. And it's, and for me, it's like, okay, how do we bridge these gaps between this music that is ours? Strange Fruit, this is our music. Right. And what is so painful in education, for me, jazz education, it's getting lost. We're not talking about what the impact of this music, we're not talking about that this is protest music. You know, we're just learning two fives and all this heavy stuff and we're losing our spirit. And I think that is the step. I think in education, every kind of American music is rooted in black music. Absolutely. I can't think of one that isn't. And I think that is really important for us to just take a moment and like you, like you were saying, go back and, and recognize the people that came before us to keep our eyes open for these little ones. The panelists all spoke to the importance of educators. Here's Devin Blake-Jones again. It starts with the faculty and the teachers. And I think we're getting there, but it's a conversation at that round table when you're out at the happy hour and you have an opportunity to say it, say it, give the black girl the lead, roll and play. You know, I was very, very fortunate in high school to be given my very first experience. I had a solo for the concert, you know, and it made me feel special. It made me feel like I had something that was worth continuing to work towards. And I just, you know, we're always the sidekick, you know? And it's, so I feel like we need to continue to in encourage those people making those decisions in schools to give the lead roles to, the, to people of color. For example, I mean, this season on The Voice was the first season in 20 seasons where it was 50% people of color. And a black woman has never won the show in 20 seasons. So there's a lot of work to be done, but it's a lot of it I think is because with music and entertainment, we tend to be afraid to have these conversations because we don't wanna ruin our chances or we don't wanna, you know, it's, let's shake the hands and smile and rub those shoulders so we can get that gig. Well, I don't want the gig if I have to sacrifice my integrity with who I am as a person and all of the hard work I've done, all of the shows that I've done for my community. And, you know, if, if I have to kind of downplay my blackness, then I just go ahead and keep it. And, you know, when high school, we, we had Greeks, the musical Greeks, mm -hmm. and they cast the lead role, Danny, as he was a short, tubby black kid. And he killed that show. Okay. He was doing all the dance moves and you would have thought it was Danny from Greece. You don't think, oh, he has to have black hair and the physique. 
but he can't sing and he can't act. So what are you doing? Right. You know, and that that teacher really knew. She said he's a great actor. So it doesn't matter that he doesn't look the role. That I feel is also where we need to start. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, is let's let's not worry about the the skin color. Yeah. Let's give the person who deserves that role the role. Devin's comments reminded moderator Jocelyn Ford Keel of an experience that she's run into where perceptions of her as a black artist did not match reality. Being hired to sing for a corporate event or wedding and showing up and there are choir robes and (laughs) right, right. (laughs) But this is peak Denver or peak Colorado. This happens often in having to sing something as though it is the gospel truth and put on my culture as a as a costume and now I, I just totally won't do it. <laughs> whether you tell me in advance, whether I show up and they're there, sorry, I can't help you. That's, you know, it's the equivalent of what happens on Cinco de Mayo. And what I think people are fearing might happen with Juneteenth now that it is a federal holiday and that it's, it's made it to the mainstream. Jocelyn Ford Keel performs under the name Joe Fokey, and she writes music. The song is called Count. So when it feels like my good ain't good enough And when it seems like all my hope is lost And when it feels the world is caving in I must I lived in Nashville for 12 years and coming back was a bit, I experienced a bit of a culture shock. Um, Nashville is music city, right? And so everyone is a singer songwriter. It's kind of laughed at if you, if you perform covers. And so when I came back to Colorado and everybody was like, "Ah, what are these songs? I don't know these songs that you're doing. Oh yeah. Cause I wrote them. What? Nobody's doing, oh no, honey, nobody wants to hear your music. What? But that's, that's kind of the culture. And there are those of us who are pushing back and saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm not doing any more tribute shows. I'm not doing any more screaming over, over conversation um, to, to share my gift. No, 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 I'm going to write my own music. I'm going to perform that music. If I do some covers, they're going to be my arrangements. Sorry if they don't sound how Shaka Khan did them, because I'm not Shaka Khan or an iPod. Um, there, there are those of us who are doing that, but it is, it is such an uphill battle here in Colorado. So with that, knowing that there are other cities where um, Black artistry is thriving much more. <laughs> Atlanta is there. I mean, is being dubbed the the Black Hollywood. What keeps you here? Why not L.A.? Why not New York? Why not Chicago, Austin, Dallas, Atlanta? I get a little overwhelmed sometimes by the idea of that because 
you know, some of my family that lives in different parts of the country that are more black. Uh, I just, I feel like I get nervous because I don't like being challenged with my blackness. Oh, you don't know this artist? <laughs> you don't know who he is? You don't listen to that? You don't know that? And st instead of just, just supporting me as a person and saying, hey, have you heard this? You should listen to it. So I, I get nervous about going into those situations and I want to, but I've never have. I went to an almost all white school at the time in high school. So, uh, you know, I've been getting better at the idea of working in a room full of black people. But when you've never done that, it's kind of scary. It's like, please, please don't ask me like some question about some rapper. I don't know. Yeah. There's somebody told, told you probably all of you, uh, gee, you sound white. Oh, man. Um, I had a dollar for every time I, we, I could <laughs> holla, okay? I could, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I agree with that. I, I grew up in a predominantly white community as well, and it's always kind of like this weird imposter syndrome almost when you're around black people, you know, and it's hard. I think a lot of it, too, we carry that internalized, like, being in that mostly white environment where they're expected you to be that token black person and for you to act black and to, you know, all the jokes that they would make. And I know for me, like, just talking about the music business and how do we decide how to, when to go into that space. And I remember, like, in middle school, you know, coming out of a concert and hearing somebody, oh, yeah, did you hear that saxophone player? Oh, yeah, well, of course you play like that. Because I'm black. <laughs> and, I'm, and I just, you know, listening to everything, it's a challenge because even when we're in that space, even when we are the best, a lot of times it is downplayed. <laughs> entirely and it's just like oh well of course they can dance she's black of course she can sing she's black and i think that's a big reason why there hasn't been a black female winner on the voice right. even though there's been plenty of very much capable women black women on that show and so i just i being in colorado it is i have pitched uh like a nina simone thing mm. at a nameless place <laughs> didn't hear back from these people next thing i know it is an all-white band performing Nina Simone. And it was one I was going to, and this, I did the same thing with uh, Nancy Wilson. I was going to have Jocelyn on. So many times I've done this. And, you know, you're talking about, okay, what keeps us here? Dang. I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, 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 like, what fosters that creativity is being around people that come from that same place as you. And playing with like a band with Solomon and, and Jocelyn and Will, Will thank you, <laughs> um, on bass, it, it's like there are things I did not have to say. Playing the songs that I write, I don't have to say anything. I don't have to explain what that space is. I play with another band and I, I'm spending most of my time doing that. So we can't, it's so hard to foster that here when it's just so few people come from that same place as you. And so, I mean, that's a challenging question for me because I've lived here my whole life and I feel like, gosh, I know that I would get so much out of being around other black female musicians who are killing the game, like crushing it. And there's so many uphill battles that we have to fight that takes us away from that artistry, you know, that keeps us from okay, do I take that gig knowing that they're only hiring me because I'm black? Or do I take that gig because I need to play? Or like, because I actually want to play that music, but how do I find that balance? It's such a challenge here. I don't necessarily think that you have to move to another place, 
I think we do just need to continue to find those spaces because who knows what will will grow from this soil here today and the opportunities that come from that. This is a great start. You know, we got five black baddies up here just talking about life and it's something great is going to come from this, I think. I woke up. That's joy. Breath in my body. That's joy. Friends and family. That's joy. That's joy. That's joy. Grace and mercy always right behind me. That's joy. That's joy. Big thanks to the team at Cleo Parker Robinson Dance for providing this recording of their gathering on Juneteenth, 2021. Again, this music is from Joe Foki. We'll have links to her site along with the other panelists you heard from at CPR.org. My co-host, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. Tomorrow, she'll lead a conversation with choreographer Cleo Parker Robinson and DEI scholar Dr. Brenda Allen from CU Denver. That will take place at Cleo Parker Robinson Dance, not far from the Juneteenth Festival on Welton Street in Denver's historic Five Points neighborhood. Juneteenth has become both a state and federal holiday. It commemorates the end of slavery in the U.S., specifically when people enslaved in Texas learned more than two years after the Emancipation Proclamation that they were free. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Climate change is a global issue with undeniable local impact. Sign up for CPR News Climate Weekly for a digest of fact-based reporting about the environment in and affecting Colorado. Sign up at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. Insects are inundating northwest Colorado. Think of them as the flightless, crunchier analog to Miller moths. For better or for worse, these critters pouring through Rio Blanco County are known as Mormon crickets, even though technically they are shield-backed katydids. They got their names after damaging crops of early Mormon settlers near Salt Lake. They are still damaging hay crops around Rangeley, Colorado, Linda Masters leads the extension office there. They go in swarms, so you'd be driving along, and then there's just a swarm of them going across the highway. And, I mean, they're crunching under your tires. (laughs) And the road is actually red from squashed crickets. Ew. Well, local officials are offering free deterrence against these seasonal insects, a bait meant to be poured in front of your house, which the crickets eat and die from, creating a grisly multiplier effect. The crickets are very cannibalistic, so if they eat it, then the ones behind them come along and they will eat the dead ones, and then they'll die, and then they'll just pile up. You again. Master says hay farmers can cut their fields early to lessen the bugs' damage. For everyone else, the swarms, some of the worst in years, will move on eventually. They don't really last that long. Uh, It's going to seem like forever if they're in your yard. They usually stay at one site maybe three or four days. Linda Masters says the swarms can travel up to 25 miles in one season. He's going the distance. He's going for speed. She's all alone. 
10 years ago, a wildfire tore through the Black Forest community north of Colorado Springs. Two people died. Around 500 homes were destroyed. Terry Stoka has lived in Black Forest for 30 years. KRCC's Shauna Lewis spoke with him about a recovery that persists a decade later. Are people still moving into the area? Have homes been rebuilt? Well, it's interesting that in our development, there were 26 homes that burned. And out of that, one person has not rebuilt. It's still a vacant lot, but the others have. And they built very nice homes. After the fire, of course, we had a lot of black sticks all over the place because the trees were burned. And we got neighbors together and organized it so that this company came with this great big masticator, like a big rototiller. And this guy just went from residence to residence and just cleared off the black trees. Other people cleared their own lots. And so probably in the fall, late fall, we had all of the black sticks down. And of course, the grass hadn't come back yet, but it kind of was a new normal. And the people that rebuilt ended up with dynamite views because now they could see the mountains. And so what we thought were going to be worthless lots because the trees were burned, the value went back up again because they had a million-dollar view. Within a year or two, lot values were right up back where they were before the fire. And is that true throughout the entire Black Forest area? I think it depended on how well it was cleaned up. I know a lot that's a five-acre lot. It was covered with trees, but there was nothing built on it, and it burned, so it's nothing but black sticks. But the owner doesn't care that much about it, so nothing's been done. So it's a real mess. I think people would be hesitant to pay a lot for a lot, as much for a lot right next to that, than they would one that was all cleaned up. What challenges does the community still face as a result of the fire or since the fire? about a third of the forest burned. So there's still two-thirds left. And that two-thirds is very much needing what we call mitigation. It's way too thick. There's way too much trees on the ground. And so the need is very much still for cleanup. Did the fire affect how you feel about more growth in the area? We found that houses that were on two-and-a-half-acre lots or smaller burned at a higher frequency because the embers from one house jumps over to another house. And so we have long had a rule, if you want to call it that, in our preservation plan that the lots should be five acres and no smaller. And that's partly for preservation of trees and wildlife and stuff. But there were several sections of Black Forest were built and developed before they established five-acre zoning. And those areas burned much more severely as far as houses. And so we think that we should fight to keep the five-acre rule, both for preservation of trees and animals and as well as for fire safety. And have you been involved in the recovery effort? Yes. After the fire, Black Forest Together was an organization that was formed that was dedicated to recovery. It was going to be restore, recover, and rebuild. In the beginning, the whole idea was to help people immediately, and we had an office that was open every day in the fire station with representatives from recovery organizations, charitable organizations. Then the Red Cross donated a chipper to Black Forest Together, and we organized crews and went out to clean up people's property. And other times, teams went to people's houses to, for instance, put up a log dam in a gully so the rain wouldn't wash everything away. 
Later on, a suborganization from Black Forest Together, kind of separate, was formed called Trees for Tomorrow. And they would connect people who said, I've got way too many trees, I need to get rid of some of them. And people then would buy these trees from Trees for Tomorrow, which would pay for the equipment, the gas and everything, and they would take them over to someone's house and they would plant those trees. Black Forest Together is now dissolved and Trees for Tomorrow is as well. So I'd have to say that right now, recovery efforts are pretty well over. What do you think the future holds for Black Forest? I think the future holds a constant struggle to do responsible development. We want to have homes on five-acre lots where people care about it, take care of it, and love it like we do. That is Terry Stoka, president of Friends of the Black Forest Association. He spoke with KRCC's Shauna Lewis about the community's decade-long recovery from a deadly wildfire. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour with another disconnect between the governor and local governments. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Celebrate Pride Month with Indy 102.3. Celebrate love and community, visibility and progress. All this month, show your pride and listen to Indy 102.3. Governor Jared Polis irked some local leaders as he pitched Proposition HH this week. That is the ballot measure designed to ease skyrocketing property taxes. Colorado Counties Incorporated says the governor was unfair when he told me that the legislature had to step in with HH because locals slacked off. CCI member and Park County Commissioner Dick Elsner. I have a lot of respect for the governor. The thing is, he's never he's never been down in the trenches with counties and in the property tax realm. Elsner explains that it comes down to timing. He says local governments haven't lowered tax rates because they're only just learning the new valuations. And it will be fall before counties have a picture of their budgets in light of those new values. At that point, they can then lower the mill levy and set it at a number that matches what they think their budget should be. So if a municipality or a county is getting you know, 100% more or 50% more money in, they won't know it until they get to that point. And at that point, they can say, well, that's really not fair to our citizens. We need to lower it. Uh, You know, we need to lower our mill levy so we don't hit them with this huge increase in taxes. Elsner adds that counties were, in fact, proactive. He's referring to a bill the legislature passed. Local governments had asked for it because they wanted more flexibility to lower tax rates, but they worried the Tabor Amendment would force them to return to voters later to increase rates again, if necessary. Senate Bill 108 allows local governments to drop taxes temporarily as valuations rise, then move them back up if needed without voter approval. It was county commissioners saying we need the ability to have more flexibility in how we set our mill levy. Because if we're going to set it lower this year because the taxes went up way too much, well, that's fine. But the following year, you know, there could be a market correction and the valuations go down, at which point we'd want to be able to float our mill levy up just to keep our income the same. Colorado Counties, Inc. hasn't yet taken a position on Prop HH. There is at least a possibility it doesn't make the ballot. The Daily Sentinel reports today 
that the state Supreme Court will now review whether H.H. meets the single subject rule. One more note regarding this week's interview with the governor. Polis incorrectly described Colorado's homestead exemption. For the record, seniors must be in their homes for 10 years to qualify for the tax break, which exempts half of the first $200,000 of value. All of this very much a testament to the complexities of the HH issue. How big should your salary be to maximize your well-being? Lauren Jenkins came up with an answer and shares it around Colorado. Jenkins quit his job in finance to help young people become more financially literate, work he does as well through the Denver Housing Authority. We spoke in February. And Lauren, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Your education startup is called Mini Money. I want to start, though, with your mom. When you were a kid, she turned your home in Longmont into kind of like a company? We had a household economy is what she called it. We had to go through job interviews first. Oh. So we asked my mom to go out to eat every single week and she got fed up with it. And so she said, okay. So we came downstairs and there was a job opening for son and for daughter on the refrigerator. And we had to apply for the positions. We had to fill out a resume. So we got paid a salary every single week. And then we had to pay for rent. We had to pay for utilities. We had to pay for laundry. And her big thing was that it was more expensive to go out to eat than it was to stay at home. I actually lost my money at one point, so I had to take out a loan from the bank. How did you lose your money? Uh, My little sister stole it, and she'll never admit to it, but she did, in (laughs) fact, (laughs) steal my finances. But my mom's claim to fame is that by the time we got to the end of the summer, she asked us, hey, do you guys want to go out to eat? We said, no, mom, that's way too expensive. And so from a very young age, we just understood what money was because we used it every day and it made sense to us. And that's what we try to give back to kids today. And so you learned how much more value there was in eating at home and like what the markup was in eating out. I wonder if you then started thinking about other aspects of your life through that filter. I mean... We got paid to do our chores, so Uh we did our chores, and so I was like, okay, well, where am I going to spend my money? Do I want to play video games today? Do I want to watch TV today? But it started to get to the point where we would compare the two. It's like, do I have enough money to play video games today? No, let me just read a book, make a little bit of extra money. We can watch Mm -hmm. a movie tonight, because that was a system that she had set up. It seems that you speak of this in almost admiring terms now, but I wonder if as a kid, you kind of despised it. The worst part for me were the video games. And I actually ended up taking a loan from my little sister to play video games for a few weeks in a row. And she actually has been great with her money ever since. And I've always kind of skated by a little bit. So old habits die hard. Amazing. And so the notion of an allowance became a salary in this home economy. You then studied economics in college and worked in finance in London. Do you think that's because of your mom, by the way? What's cool to me was to look at economics after doing the household economy. So to see how the basic principle of economics was stuff that my mom had been teaching me since I was like seven, eight years old. What was it like working in finance in London? I I actually watched a TV drama set in that kind of environment, and it seems really intense. And like there's maybe not a lot of sleep and there's a ton of competition. Are all those things true? A hundred and ten percent. I would wake up at five in the morning and, you know, eat breakfast, take about an hour, hour, 15 minute train ride to work, 
Then you work about a 12-hour day. So you work seven to seven most days. You take about an hour train ride home. And You're just like a finance machine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of my roommates told me at the time, like, we haven't seen you for like two weeks. So I think the work-life balance was a lot off. And it is an extremely competitive market. I mean, we're in one of the financial centers of the world. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I think I got into economics because I like the study of people and how people deal with money. And my opinions or my views on a majority of the people in the finance industry are that they're not out to help people. They're there to make a profit and they're there to make money. And I learned that very, very quickly. Is that why you quit? Yeah. So my, my manager at the time said, if you want to help, I said, we're not helping anybody. And he said, if you want to help people, you'll never make any money. And I'm a little bit stubborn. And I took that as a challenge. Oh, okay. I feel like it's time for the big reveal. What is the ideal salary for our emotional well-being? So right now it's about $70,000. $70,000. Is that specific to place? In other words, do you account for Colorado in that? Yeah. So I use Denver as a whole. So $70-ish thousand dollars is where you're going to be able to take care of your basic human needs. Now, basic human needs is not just the fact that you can eat, sleep, and you have a roof over your head. It's do you have mental well-being? Are you emotionally well? So you start from zero to 70K. Your happiness level is going to rise, 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 rise. You get to 70K and it's going to even out between about 70K and 120K. Okay. And then once you get to $120,000, your happiness level is actually going to start to decline. That's the kind of more money, more problems moment. Exactly. Uh-huh. Most, yeah, most times it comes with you don't have enough time to spend the money that you're making or you're not doing a position or a job that truly like fills that passion and that purpose. So after you get your basic needs met, the only way that you're going to start to add happiness is through passion and purpose, feeling like what you're doing matters. Did you arrive at these numbers through personal experience or studying something bigger? There's actually, they've done a decent amount of research on money and happiness as a whole. Like a lot of the research that I've done is around the psychology of money. So when you look there, I mean, there have been plenty of studies to show that at certain income levels, people are more and less happy. Uh And so if you take those trends, I mean, it makes sense with the way that you see people work. Like a lot of super high earners aren't the happiest all the time. And a lot of people who aren't making the most feel very fulfilled. So I think it's a combination of research and then personal experience. Well, just to be completely indelicate, what were you earning at the height of those London days? <laughs> so I was probably making 70 to 80,000 at the time. Oh. And so this is like fresh out of school. So I had more money than I ever knew what to do with. But I would say well, I've been doing many money for the last three years and we have made not nearly as much as I made in a year. And I've never been happier. Lauren Jenkins is the founder of Mini Money. We spoke in February about financial and personal well-being. After a break, we'll hear from middle schoolers about this concept that making more money doesn't necessarily equate to more happiness. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the late summer, male deer, elk, and moose are often seen with red shreds and ribbons hanging from their antlers. It's not necessarily the result of a gory fight. Instead, they're peeling off the velvet that coats spring antlers. Velvet is actually skin, complete with blood vessels to carry nutrients to growing antlers, the fastest growing bones in existence. On elk, they grow an inch a day. Moose can gain as much as a pound of antler every day. During the rut, the rattle of antlers echoes in Colorado forests and mountains. After breeding, bucks and bulls shed the heavy racks they no longer need to move a little more easily as they turn their attention to grazing enough to make it through the winter. Look for shed antlers on your next hike in the woods and keep your eyes open even wider 
for a glimpse of an animal with the rarest antlers in all the West, the legendary jackalope. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. Can money buy happiness? Or perhaps put in a more nuanced way, how big should your salary be to maximize well-being? Lauren Jenkins answers that question through his startup Mini Money. It teaches kids and adults financial literacy. Let's get back to our conversation from February. We asked one of your students about this, middle schooler Isabel Jaramillo, who lives in Antonito in the San Luis Valley. You taught a course there and hosted a run club last summer, I guess combining physical and financial health. And we asked Isabel if it was surprising to hear that over about $120,000, it may not help your happiness to make more money. It kind of was. A lot of people assume that the more money you have, the more things you could buy and get for yourself. But he explained it to us where you could have all the money you want, but that you could be sick and not be able to do anything with it. Or you could be poor and have nothing, but still have happiness. I think that at an extent that is true because a lot of things you can't just buy for yourself or others and make everything better. Lauren, why tell a middle schooler or a high schooler what salary they should aim for? Because most kids don't have that conversation. And so you get out of school and the only thing most kids will think about is, well, I need to earn as much as I possibly can. I need to earn, I need to earn, I need to earn. But if nobody talks to you about your mental well-being or your happiness or your purpose or your passion, then you never know to look for it. And so, so many times people will go through bad jobs and then try to find their purpose, their happiness and their passion. And that's not to say that kids shouldn't go try to make a lot of money. Uh It's just figuring out what works for you. So the earlier we can introduce it to them, maybe they don't have to go through the same struggles and the difficulties that we've had to go through looking for jobs and looking for happiness. But we've also gotten the messages so often that it's impolite to talk about money. I mean, even when I asked you how much you earned in London, right, I prefaced it with, I don't mean to be indelicate. Do we need to change how we think about talking about money? A hundred percent. I mean, it's something that I struggle with. I work with people every day one-on-one with money, and I still struggle when I ask, how much do you make? But if we can't start to have these open conversations, then you're always going to feel like you're on an island or you're going to feel like you're crazy. The more isolated people feel with money, the more that they'll go into a hole, the more that they'll... Like, st- a, little, like, a, like a debt hole? Do you mean? mean like a, a debt hole, whether it's either a debt hole, you could have too much credit, or honestly, you could potentially just start to make too much money that you don't know what to do with your hat. Like you have too much money to, to manage. And you could also have not a lot of money, but if you know that there's other people around you who are successful, or you know that it's okay not to have that much money, then the way that you're going to approach it and the way that the conversation is going to go is going to look a whole lot different. Financial success is going to look different for everybody. If you even look at commercials, you look at investing, you look at everybody's going to tell you what you should do with your money. And the first thing I tell the people is, I really don't care what you spend your money on as long as you budget for it. Everybody's financial goals are going to look different. Financial success for every single person is going to look so different. Finances are extremely personal and they're extremely emotional. But at the end of the day, money is a tool. It's not good or evil. We could put a hammer on this table right now and it's a tool. Somebody good could pick it up, they could build a house. Somebody bad could pick it up and they could go hurt somebody. Money works in the same way. It's a tool. Now, it definitely has a big impact on our emotions, but once people see money as a tool and them controlling it and not it controlling them, they say, okay, well, 
if I want to buy a house, then my money needs to work for me to go buy a house. Do you try to take out some of the emotion? I try to bring awareness to the emotion. If I've got somebody who always feels anxious when they think about money, what I'll tell them is you're not going to not feel anxious, but when you feel anxious, go check your budget. Go look at it. Go do another budget. And that's going to bring down the anxiety. Fascinating, because I think about how much of my behavior today is related to my childhood experiences, my relationship with my parents. And that's true for finances as well. And our relationship with money, these things are forged early. Yeah. So actually, at the age of five, kids will have a natural response to money. And it's not genetic. We call them, they're either going to be tightwads or spendthrifts. So they're going to feel pain (laughs) when they spend money or they're going to feel pleasure when they spend money. And so we tell people that it's important to be aware of what your natural tendencies are. Because if you know that you're a spendthrift, then don't bring your credit card to the mall. I'm not saying don't go to the mall. I'm not saying don't shop. I'm just saying know how you naturally are based towards money. And then we can make a plan to fix it or to move forward. Yeah. It's so affirming, right? Because it's not telling someone they're wrong. It's giving them workarounds. Mm -hmm. To start talking to people about money who've never really had this conversation before, I understand you put their own money situation into a societal context, right? Explain this for us. I mean, if you want to look at the racial relations behind it, if you want to look at class, like there's so many different things that come into how people deal with money. Like we've got people at the Denver Housing Authority that have been there for five generations and they've never had access to more capital. Now, if you look at a 13-year-old kid and her mom's been in public housing, her grandma's been in public housing, her great-grandma's been in public housing, what does that kid start to think? Well, maybe this is just where I belong. Mm. So if you can't tell, if you can't show that kid that this has nothing to do with you, you were just born into this situation. Now, what are we going to do to get you out of it? There's so many ways and it's so easy for people to get off on the wrong foot with finances. And also there's no education around it. You get, if you're lucky, maybe two classes on money from the time you're what, five to the time you graduate college, if you go to school, how we expect people to be good with their money. Okay, maybe some more brass tacks. How do you advise people to save when they start making money? Mm, Make goals that you care about. So the number one, so as human beings, we psychologically are built to spend money that we receive. We get it in and we want to spend however much we have available. Oh, that's that's kind of our resting pulse is to want to spend money. Exactly. Interesting. So we and it's 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 just human behavior. So what we tell people is, A, save first. You'll hear that 10 ways from Sunday. Save first. As soon as you pay, save first, save first. But if people don't know what they're saving up for and why they're saving up for, they're not going to save their money. So I'll tell people, write down your goals. Put up a picture of it. Because when you see that picture and when you have a goal that you actually care about, not investing because somebody told you to invest, you want to buy a car so you could take your kid to school. We'll put that up on the wall and you say, you know what, instead of going to Starbucks, I'm going to save this money because I want to take care of my family. It becomes your true north. It becomes your true north. Yeah. Exactly. What age or what stage should someone get a credit card? (laughs) That's a great question. I'm going (laughs) to share a memory from college. I signed up for a credit card at one point because they were offering free boxer shorts. (laughs) I mean, let's talk about a misguided or completely unguided financial decision, Lorne. But, you know, this was also credit card companies knowing how to kind of lure a young person. Again, same thing with money. I don't think credit and debt are good or evil. They are tools. But it becomes the conversation of not when you should get a credit card, but what do you want that credit card for? Oh, If credit is going to serve a purpose in your life, 
then yeah, let's come up with a, a healthy way for you to have a credit card. It's a little bit related to your approach to savings. Have the thing in mind mm-hmm. that is prompting you to do this behavior. Another piece we talk about is where do you use your credit card? So it's not if you should use a credit card, it's where. Okay. So we only use it on our needs, not our wants. So any fun spending, don't do on your credit card. You do out of cash. You do out of cash or you do out of like a, a completely separate account. Wait, are you hinting at the idea that you have a needs account and a want account? So yeah, I probably should have led with this. The easiest thing that I tell people is have a savings account, one or two savings accounts, a need account, and then a want account. Huh. So you want to make sure like at the end of the day, we should enjoy our money. The why work all the doggone why work all the time if You can say doggone on the radio alone, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I was about to curse. <laughs> we, we always tell people, why do all of these things if you're not going to enjoy the fruits of your labor? Mm-hmm. And so it's just about making sure that you enjoy the fruits of your labor while you don't impact your future and you don't impact your needs for the day. So after you save, after you take care of your needs, we always I call it the ball out account. Ball out. Put all that money on a separate card. If you want to go out to the casino, if you want to go to the bars, if you want whatever you feel like doing with your money. As long as you've taken care of your future and your needs are met today, go wild. Why don't we hear just a little more from Isabel and Antonito about her experience with your group, Mini Money. So a lot of adults don't really like seem to want to talk about money as much. So going into this, everything was open. They answered every question Usually in high school is when you start making money and a lot of people don't know what to do with it and end up spending a lot of it. And then once you get to college, you end up being in a lot of debt. But now I think I'm more prepared for my future and know what to expect going into the real world. How do you separate the power that someone has in managing their personal finances from the true systemic issues that prevent people from advancing financially? I kind of say, so I've got an athlete's background. So I always, I kind of teach people money with a chip on their shoulder. If you've got systemic issues, if there's forces that are moving against you, mm-hmm. I say we fight it head up. And so to me, it's almost, uh, that's almost more of an empowerment thing to say, you're right. This system is set up against you. So what are we going to do about it? Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Lauren Jenkins is founder of Mini Money. He also works with folks through the Denver Housing Authority. We spoke in February as part of our series on learning to manage money. And that is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to my priceless team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.